Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 the joy of the hypocrite and how brief it is that will be the subject of our time today on abounding grace with pastor gary wagner join us The New Testament version of today's broadcast could be found in Hebrews chapter 11. Sin is pleasurable for a season. And here in Job chapter 20, we are reminded that the joy of the hypocrite is really quite brief. Welcome to today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Our teacher and pastor, Gary Wagner, continues our survey of Job. We find ourselves again here in chapter 20 as we take a look at the hypocrite and how brief their joy really is. Is there benefit to sin, to hypocrisy? Well, maybe for a quick season, but for eternity, well, not so much. With more, here's Pastor Gary Wagner on today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. At the end of chapter 19, which we looked at about two months ago, Job made one of the most remarkable statements of faith in all of the Old Testament. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives, that he shall stand upon the earth, though worms destroy this flesh, yet in my flesh shall I see God. When Job's three friends heard this, they could not but merely agree which was unusual for them, because Job was speaking here through the Spirit of Christ that was in him. Like Abraham, he looked ahead to Christ's day, and he saw it. And even in the midst of the worst sufferings, he was able to endure by holding on to Christ. That is like us. True faith is going to be tested. We are going to be tempted. We are going to be tried, but faith runs to Christ. There's nowhere else to go. We have no one on earth beside Him. No one else in heaven do we desire besides Him. Job's three friends heard him say this, and their reaction should have been, Job... We're going to listen to you. You see things that we don't see. But that wasn't the reaction. And in many respects, Ophar's words are the worst we will run into in this entire book. Because he is speaking, and this happens to be his second speech, as an angry, angry man. He opens here in the first few verses by saying, I feel compelled. And I am answering you hastily. He says in verse 3, Job, you have reproached me. I feel it bitterly. The spirit of my understanding, he says, makes me answer. 
He's looking within himself here. And he says, you are forcing me to give this answer. I'm sad to have to say this, but Zophar in many respects is a very powerful negative example of what we do in terms of James 1.19, which states that every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Zophar, of course, was boiling. He didn't care. He just knew that he had been rebuked, even though Job had just spoken to him of Christ. He couldn't restrain himself. Now, there's one change I'll note before we go through the rest of this chapter. And it is the same thing, if you remember, that Bildad said back in chapter 18. Remember how his friends have been saying, God doesn't bless the wicked man? At some level, they have been listening to Job. Because under their blistering rebukes, they now say, the wicked man can be blessed, but only for a brief period of time. So their premises have changed somewhat, but their conclusions are still the same. Job, you may have been blessed for a while, but God has taken it all away. Therefore, what? You must be a hypocrite. Job, you are a wicked man. Again, his friends are not willing to let go of their claims against Job, and they remain blind. In verses 1 through 9, Zophar makes one main point, and that is, the triumph of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is brief. Now, I already noted in the first few verses how he is speaking here in a very agitated way. And oh, how we need to pray that when we have an occasion to defend God's truth, 2 Timothy 2.22 is true of us, in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. That is one of the most important qualities of godly talk. Meekness. Not a sense of, I've got to defend myself. Not a sense of, because you've disagreed with me, I'm going to let you have it. But a meek and subdued spirit before God. And Zophar does not have that spirit. You know, we all have a little bit of Zophar in us, I think. We all have our own opinions. We all take it a little bit negatively when someone says something against us in some way or challenges something that we hold very important. We are sinful beings. But we also need to have a little bit of David in us. Do you remember when Shimei came to curse David and Abshai said, Hey, let me cut off this dog's head. Then David told Abshai, don't touch him. In 2 Samuel 16, 11, David said, the Lord told him to curse me, and he sent him. You see, we need to be willing to listen to rebukes. We don't need to respond out of a wounded pride. But as Paul said in Colossians 4, let your speech be always with grace, 
seasoned with salt. And always remember, the Lord Jesus will help us respond like this. Beloved, it is so important for us to learn not to speak provocatively in the church, in our families, on the internet. It is vital. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. The Lord Jesus is here spoken of, and we could go on to the Gospels to see how this actually works its way out in practice. But notice here verse 1 of Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's the kind of Spirit we need. We need counsel. We need understanding. We need strength. We need to fear the Lord. So even if we think, I just can't believe that person said that. I can't believe they disagreed with my interpretation of that text of Scripture. I've lived by that interpretation of that text for the last 30 years. And here's this little whippersnapper who thinks he can school me. Okay? We need to be praying. We need to be in union with Christ. So we are not like Zophar. Job's friends should have been listening to him. But they didn't. If we are going to be good listeners, slow speakers, and slow to anger... We need to pray for the very spirit that is in our Lord and Savior to be upon us. We need to pray this week, Lord, give me a spirit of understanding. Give me a spirit of counsel and give me strength. And more than any else, give me a true fear of you. So when we talk to, when you, when people talk to me, I will, how, I will know an answer just like you did, Lord. Remember, Christ would answer differently according to his circumstances. With the Jewish leaders who were leading away God's people, he could be very strong. With a poor, bleeding woman, he could be as gentle as a dove. That's the spirit we need. And that is the spirit he promises to give us if we ask him, beloved. Again, meekness, humility is one of the most important qualities for godly speaking and for defending God's truth. Remember, a soft answer turns away wrath. Zophar, he's just stirring everything up. He will not be still or be quiet before the Lord. Notice what he says there in verse 4. He says, Job, I've got experience on my side. I've got ancient philosophy on my side. Verse 5, the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is bought for a moment. This is true at one level. But at another level, Zophar assumes that Job is a wicked man or a hypocrite. 
And Job's wickedness in Zophar's mind is exactly equal to how prosperous he was before because he's obviously a hypocrite or a wicked man. And so God's taking it all away. And what is worse, Job is not listening to us. And wisdom dies with us. He just assumes Job is a wicked man. He assumes you can identify a wicked man and hypocrites by their circumstances outwardly. Whether rich or poor, healthy or sick, strong or weak. But of course, if Zophar was right, we would never know whether a blessing gives us anything but a fattening up for judgment. So Zophar is wrong. Nor could we look at David in his moments of great judgment, nor our Savior who had nowhere to set his head except to conclude, oh, you must be cursed because your life is going badly. Zophar is all messed up here. Obviously, he is wrong. God sometimes gives seasons of joy and prosperity to his children and then removes those comforts to chasten us or to set us crying out to him again. And he sometimes gives joy to wicked men that last all their life. As much as we would like to think that if you are wicked until you're 50 and then, you know, you turn 51 until you die, life, unless you've repented, is going to be horrible. Of course, that's not the case. Remember, Jesus spoke of the rich man who all of his life had all his heart could wish. But he was never content. He built bigger and bigger barns. And the very night he died, he was still saying to himself, Oh, I've just got so much. But I've got to tear down these small barns and build bigger barns. And Asaph, remember, complains about the wicked in Psalm 73. Those wicked people who are always prosperous and never seem to have a care in the world. So listen, it is simply false that the godly are always blessed and happy in this life or that the wicked are always troubled and judged and destroyed. It is not true. God treats his children as his children which means that he chastens us. He treats us at times more roughly than he does the children of the world. And toward the wicked, he treats them with tremendous long-suffering. Why? For long-suffering is the salvation of the world. So rather than trying to read the murky tea leaves of what we see in front of us, we need to go by God's plain word. It is not always true that the wicked get what they deserve in this life. Sometimes God allows them to slide right through all the way until the moment they stand before Him. Sometimes God brings His children through a very hard path. I have known some very godly people, and I'm sure most of you have as well, who have suffered some 
serious health or financial or family or vocational issue. And, and it's been their entire lives. And if we were to look at their outward circumstance, we would conclude God must not love them. And yet, through all the tears and all the trials, those things all come to an end. Just like the joy of the wicked when they stand before the Lord. God's historical judgments, though, are real. And they are sufficiently common to warn us against disobeying God. But they are not absolute in this life. And they are always tempered with long-suffering. We have to reject Zophar's main line of thought. But there is some gold here in this dross. Notice there in verse 6. It doesn't matter how much in his excellently he, the wicked man, mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches up into the clouds. He will perish like his dung. Where is he, verse 7? Verse 8, he flies away like a dream. I ask you, have you ever had a dream that was so vivid to you and you were just kind of in and out of that dream and you were remembering even during the dream some of it and suddenly you're wide awake and you just can't remember any of it for your life? Zophar is right. That is how the wicked will eventually be, like a lost vision in the night. And in verse 9, everybody will look at this guy who on earth is beautiful, he's powerful. You think, man, there's no way this guy is going to be overturned. But Zophar is right. There comes a point where his place will remember him no more. We always need to remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.16. Wherefore, henceforth, now know we no man after the flesh. Meaning, in a fleshly way, as fallen men do. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. In other words, men are not what they seem. The big, the powerful, the beautiful, the bold. The wicked are often very impressive. They make us fearful. What are they going to do? Where are they meeting? What are they scheming? And nothing seems less likely than that their plans are going to be overturned. That their power will be diminished. That their riches will be lost. But at one level, so far again is right. God says... Otherwise, they will lose it all. And one of the ways we learn patiently to endure the supremacy of the wicked is to remember that his life is but a vapor. There is only a future in godliness, beloved. There's no future anywhere else. Look how Peter describes that in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. Short, concise, beautiful lines to, that you might memorize this week and think on. It says, For all flesh is of grass, and all of the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Or, from 1 John two seventeen. 
a similar point, but it's made a little more personal for us. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You know, I've always thought, you know, Smithsonian Institute, that's going to last forever. I thought, you know, the Washington Monument, oh, that's going to be there forever. You look at the Roman Colosseum and you just think, hey, it's going to stay there forever. No. The scriptures are very clear. And in this, Zophar is correct. Only the one who does the will of God will abide forever. You know, the only way we can understand this is to do what Asaph said in Psalm 73. He looked around at the prosperity of the wicked and he says, I afflict my soul every morning, which means I'm confessing my sins. I'm repenting. I'm asking God for strength. And I look at the wicked and he's not afflicted at all. He doesn't worry about what God thinks, about what he's doing. He just lives his life as he desires and he seems to be prospering. And then Asaph says, then I went to the house of God and I understood. God has set him in slippery places. So what did he see when he went into the house of God? He saw by faith through God's word that the triumph of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. Not exactly like Zophar describes it, but it is true. But even more, we must see Jesus when we come into the house of God to have faith in this promise that the wicked will only be but a vapor. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer encourages us as he encouraged the believers then as they were facing persecution and hardship. Notice what he tells them. You must hold fast to the word of God, for if we neglect so great a salvation, verse 3, it will be terrible. But then he starts quoting from Psalm 8 in verse 7. You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You did set him over the work of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. Well, this sounds great. All things in subjection under the feet of godly men. For he put all things in subjection under him, and he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all the things put under him. Now before I go on to verse 9, see how the apostle here is updating Psalm 8 in one respect. God created man to have dominion and to put everything under his feet. But when we look around at the world, it doesn't look like that, does it? It doesn't look like the godly are in charge of things or have the supremacy that God created the redeemed to have. It looks like the wicked are in charge. That's why he said at the end of verse 8, but now the children of God are oppressed and distressed at times and they are persecuted. So in verse 9, but we do see Jesus just like Job did who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. In other words, what? 
We are supposed to keep looking to Jesus. We're supposed to keep remembering, wait a minute, he was made low even though he was very high. The eternal Son of God, one with the Father in power and glory, he was made low. But now he is exalted. Right now, the church in this life is often low and persecuted and distressed. But by looking to Jesus, we receive strength to know what our destiny truly is. And we draw grace from him to be faithful and and endure as we pray each day. And as his word abides in us. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB, that stands for Post Mailbox, number 402-1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408 866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. (music) 